Yet more unsettling is something happening right here in the United States. And it's not medical, it's political. Democrats and their media cronies have decided to weaponize fear and also weaponize suffering to improve their chances against Trump. That was Fox News host Laura Ingram on February 27th, telling our primetime audience that the coronavirus scare was being overblown, in large part because it was part of a plot by liberal Democrats and their media allies to undermine President Trump. It was for weeks a consistent theme for Ingram, Sean Hannity, and several other Fox regulars. Don't worry about what all these medical experts are saying. The real danger here is the scare tactics being used by the president's enemies to frighten the public. When Ingram said those words, there were only 60 cases of the virus in the United States. Today, we're at 41,569 and counting, and more than 500 Americans have died. How and why did Fox News stars get it so wrong? And how much responsibility does Fox CEO Lachlan Murdoch have for the fact that they did? We'll talk to Ben Smith, the New York Times media columnist who has dug into those questions. And we'll talk to Yahoo News' Alex Nazarian on where we are in the crisis and where we're headed on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I uh, make a point, as I think I've said before on this show, of watching Fox News at night just to stay up on what Trump world is saying and thinking. Sometimes uh, one has a lot of fun uh, listening to them, sometimes not. But I did notice just how much the Fox anchors like Ingram and Hannity really were pushing the idea that this was a hoax, that this was cooked up by the president's enemies, just one more effort by them to uh, tear down Trump. And man, looked at from today's perspective of just a few weeks later, they couldn't have been more wrong. Look, you know, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think it took the mainstream media a while to figure out how serious a story this was going to be. Look, no one would have predicted when we started covering this story that the NBA was going to shut down, that stock markets were going to pause, that there would be effectively, as we now know today as we're recording this, 100 million Americans ordered to be, you know, in a, a, a state of lockdown or that, you know, borders were going to be sealed. And the media typically, you know, we are followers, we're not leaders. But at a certain point, several weeks ago, when all of the experts, epidemiologists, global health experts around the world were saying, this is 
really serious. We're talking about millions and millions of people contracting this this virus. We're talking about huge numbers of people dying. We're talking about a global health system that can't withstand the pressure of an epidemic like this. At a certain point, you have to start looking at the facts that are in front of you and reporting them to the American people or in the you know or the the, the whole world. And for whatever reason, which we're going to get into in this conversation with Ben Smith, Fox News wouldn't do it for at least a couple of weeks after everybody else realized how serious this story was. And those two weeks, you know, are pretty consequential and could potentially cost a lot of lives, certainly give a lot of people a false sense of security when they were facing an extremely serious, deadly threat. Look, and this is the political culture we live in, and it's the media culture where, especially on cable news, it's, you know, the thrust of political combat. Uh, The Fox folks are reacting to the MSNBC folks and, you know, vice versa. But I did notice on the Friday that Trump finally did pivot. And finally stopped his, you know, we got this under control, it's all going to blow over, everything's going to be fine. When he finally seemed to take it seriously, that night I was watching uh, Ingram and at 10 o'clock and uh, she pivoted just as well. It was now, it was all about China how China inflicted this upon us, how the Chinese lied, how they it's all their fault. And, you know, they had a um, and she had a new uh, enemy to direct the anger of Fox News listeners towards. It was pretty striking. And needless to say, much like you could read in George Orwell's 1984, no reference to anything that had come before. You know, at one day we're on the, you know, we're at war with Oceana and the next day it's, you know, the other world power. No reference to what had come previously. Uh, but wanted to bring up just a couple of other points till we get to our guests. We talked last week and we'll be talking more this week about the impact of the corona crisis on our politics. And we had Joe Trippi on talking about the likelihood, as he saw it, that the um, political conventions this summer may have to be scrapped and turned into virtual conventions. Uh, not too many people were saying that just five days ago when I think we had Trippy on and I uh, noticed the New York Times. And by the way, when we wrote that up for the Yahoo News website. The DNC dismissed the idea that there was any thought being given to uh, scrapping the conventions. The New York Times just this Monday afternoon moved the story. Democratic convention planners look at contingency options. Planners for the DNC are looking at contingency options in case the mid-July gathering in Milwaukee can take place because of the coronavirus, officials said on Monday for the first time. Well, look, that just shows how kind of quickly this story is moving and how our understanding of the uh, of the virus is kind of unfolding and changing in, in real time. Because I think what people understand now is we're going to be in a state of virtual lockdown for likely weeks and, and possibly months. What we're seeing is that the virus may come in waves. In other words, it may come 
look like it's peaking, then start to you know bend the curve to use the uh, the, uh, the metaphor that everyone's been using. But it could then come back, and it could come back ferociously. So the idea that you know two, three, four weeks from now we're going to be done with this, no one can really count on that. And there are all sorts of logistical problems for the for the. Uh, DNC. First of all, that arena in Milwaukee where the convention would be held, that's the home of the Milwaukee Bucks. I don't follow basketball as closely as I used to, but they're a pretty good team uh, these days. They would go deep into the playoffs. If the NBA NBA starts again, they would be playing in that arena, and likely (laughs) uh, playoffs would be happening right at the same time as uh, when the convention is supposed to be. Uh, Secondly, you know, these uh, state conventions that are picking the delegates for the national convention, um, they've all been delayed as well. So that's going to have an impact on all of this. So the idea that the DNC was not preparing, you know, a week ago for the potential that they couldn't hold this convention, you know, when it's scheduled to be held and how it's scheduled to be held, that was kind of crazy. Now I think they clearly realize that uh, they're going to have to come up with other plans, whether it's virtual, whether it's delaying it, whatever it is. And look, the Republican convention is later. It's uh, at the end of August, I believe, in Charlotte. They may have a little more breathing room, but, uh, you know, I, I would think that they would be beginning to think about uh, contingency plans as well. And not to mention, we still got more primaries coming up on the Democratic uh, side. Uh, I think April 28th, the end uh, is when the next big bunch comes because a number have been postponed. We'll see whether they can take place as planned. Well, already some of those, I think, are being postponed to June 2nd. You know, you're going to have, you may have, that. that is looking like it's going to be a big uh, primary day, although, you know, I think we pretty much know who the nominee is going to be. Although I, it did occur to me, and I don't know if enough of them are delayed and enough of them end up on a single day, does that give Bernie Sanders a reason to stay in longer because he can win, you know, he can have one really great day and win a lot of delegates? I, I don't think the math works, but I wonder if they're thinking about that. Yeah, I, I don't. Bernie Sanders has not dropped out like a lot of people were pushing him and hoping he was going to do at least folks in the Biden camp were hoping he was going to do after his most recent shellacking. But it's hard for me to imagine that uh, he actually thinks he's got any reasonable shot at this point. Hey, by the way, you know, one other thing that we talked about on that podcast uh, with Joe Trippi last week uh, was the what campaigning was going to be like in in the age of coronavirus. And I think you came up with the historical analogy in the 19th century to the front porch campaign, dropping uh, a little bit of uh, historical knowledge. Uh, William McKinley in 1896 running that campaign from his front porch. Joe Trippi suggested that Biden may do that. It looks like he's, in fact, already doing it. He was in seclusion for a few days, uh, which had the internet buzzing about, you know, where where's Joe? But today, as we record this podcast, uh, he gave a coronavirus speech from his home in, in Delaware. He's been talking to reporters uh, doing, you know, I think kind of conference calls with reporters from there. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think we are going to have a, a front porch campaign. Back to the future, man. Um, it's one of the uh, many movies I've been watching while uh, hold up uh, here at home uh, during this crisis. We got a um, couple of good guests. Let's start with Alex, who can give us a uh, up to date, up to the minute take on where we are. Let's get to it.
right. Joining us on the podcast is Yahoo News reporter Alex Nazarian, who has been covering every aspect pretty much of this fast-moving story uh, almost since the beginning. And just before we get to our next interview, uh, we want to kind of take stock of where we are right now, uh, get a sense of the latest developments, where we think this story is going and the impact it is going to have. Alex, one comment by a public health official, the Surgeon General, uh, Jerome Adams, that uh, got a lot of attention in the last few hours is he said, this week it's going to get bad. So tell us what he's talking about. Why is it going to get bad this week? And what are we expecting to happen? Well, first of all, I think he's right, Danny. We will see a number of things this week, most likely. One is we will see a dramatic rise in cases because more people are going to get tested. The question, of course, is how much good is testing going to do at this point? The horse is well out of the barn and through the meadow, galloping around. We, this is not an epidemic, pandemic rather. We are able to sort of contain at this point. So the question really is how are we going to treat the sick? And I think that's the second point to which the Surgeon General was referring, which is we most likely do not have the number of ICU beds, the kind of emergency equipment we need to keep people with respiratory failure alive and properly treated. And what we could see is the kinds of heartbreaking situations that we've seen in Italy where doctors are forced to decide who gets care, who doesn't, who lives and who dies. Let's just talk about the numbers quickly. At this moment, we're recording this on Monday afternoon. The latest numbers I saw were in the U.S., uh, 40,841 cases, 483 deaths. That number has gone up significantly. And uh, what would you expect to see? Obviously, we can't know precise numbers, but projecting forward this week, I mean, are we talking about getting to 100,000 cases soon and 1,000 deaths because of the amount of testing that, that's now happening and also because of the lag time between contraction, illness, hospitalization, and death? Danny, remember that some of the scenarios predict as many as 2 million deaths from the coronavirus in the United States. And as you said, we have about 400 right now. So we are about to see this disease really take off. It's only getting started with us. And that's why I've been troubled by the suggestion that the social distancing measures have been sufficient, and now it's time to lift the bans on public gatherings, the injunctions to work from home, and to go back to life as it was before the coronavirus. First of all, that I think that would be deeply unwise. And second, I, I think uh, there is not going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, life as we knew it before, unless we really want those numbers to spike. And I can't imagine that anybody wants that. I, I think the question is, how do we keep the deaths down while not allowing the economy to plunge into a second Great Depression. And I'm not sure anyone has a great solution right now. So, look, uh, as you know, Alex, uh, the president has been tweeting that he wants to reassess the social distancing guidelines uh, when the 15-day period is over. That is a week from today. Now, if we're at 40,000 
cases of infected Americans right now, 483 deaths, at the rate that those numbers have been increasing. A week from today, you can do, everybody can do the math, but we're well over 100, 150,000 and well over 2,000 deaths a week from today. How does one imagine that the president is going to be in a position to lift the guidelines? One doesn't imagine it, Michael, because I don't think it will happen. Now, look, just to be clear, that notion that these measures should not be in place for many months, that isn't just something from the right wing blog ecosystem. There was a major Wall Street Journal editorial on that point. There was an op-ed in The New York Times by, I believe, an epidemiologist. Others have written about it. This is a notion, but I think What's troubling is we're not having the national conversation about it. It's the president saying, retweeting someone who says, let's end these social distancing measures. But look, I think it's going to be up to, as it has been up to this point, a lot of municipalities, a lot of cities, a lot of governors, a lot of states to say, well, we are taking matters into our own hands, right? Because if New York and California do something, that's such an enormous share of the American population, it's as if the whole country were doing it. It's not exactly the same, but it's close. And I think that's maybe where we'll we'll end up if Trump decides to lift these measures. The argument is, Alex, that the severe contraction of the economy is going to take a human toll on human health, on human fatalities, on severe hardships for people that could well exceed what the virus is causing itself. If one thinks about malnutrition because people can't feed their families, if one thinks about suicides, if one thinks about drug addiction and alcoholism, if one thinks about skyrocketing crime rates because people can't otherwise get what they need to live, and you have lots of young people with nothing to do roaming, able to roam the streets. I mean, at some point, the the numbers from that can dwarf the numbers we're seeing from the epidemic itself. But those those numbers, Michael, so far are not anywhere near what we could see if we lift the measures, the 15 day measures that the administration introduced last month. Of course, those I don't know why am I minimizing problems like mental illness, substance abuse, just loneliness, which kills many people. It's just those are potentially epidemics or pathologies. And what we have is a pandemic. Right? So the scale of this problem, I happen to think, and I think many other people happen to think is greater than even all of those other problems put together. For now, it seems to me, right? I was looking at the numbers from Washington, D.C. We had 18 new cases over the weekend, and the average age was 38 years old. David Latt of uh, Above the Law, sort of a revered uh, legal blogger in New York City, is a very serious uh, condition. He's a two-time marathon finisher. I mean, this is not a joke, and I don't know who could possibly still think that it is. A 39-year-old woman collapsed and died in New Orleans. Uh, I mean, these stories, there are many, many stories like these, and they should, they should terrify us because they are terrifying. Alex, let me ask you a couple of other data points here. A physician in Texas 
named Emily Porter did a, a whiteboard video that rocketed around the internet about ventilators and uh, the severe shortage of that absolutely critical piece of equipment. I, I think she said, uh, looking at the numbers, looking at the potential illnesses, hospitalizations that we may need in this country, something like 7 million ventilators. And in reality, we have maybe a couple of hundred thousand ventilators. Same thing with with respirators, masks, uh, huge shortages of masks. What is being done as this you know, tsunami of patients come crashing down on our health care system? What is being done now to deal with the medical equipment crisis? You know, what is being, and this is, this is what's really tricky about that question. It's not that nothing is being done. It's that things are being done by states, by individual manufacturers. I think the question you're asking is, what is the federal government doing? I am. And in fact, precise, the, the precise question is, we know that President Trump says he invoked the Defense Production Act, which would allow him to essentially nationalize the production of medical equipment that's so badly needed. He has not seemed to have pulled the trigger on this. He sort of said he did uh, late last week. The evidence is that it has not happened. I don't entirely understand what he means when he says, I will invoke it, and yet he won't use it. And, and this is part of the frustrating response, and I, I frankly can't get my head around it. They keep saying, we will get the tests out. Now it's we will get the ventilators and the respirators out. And then we will marshal private industry to help us with these. But then none of these promises seem to materialize to any significant degree. Yes, it's wonderful that a distiller is making hand sanitizer. I'm very glad that that's happening. And, that, and I really mean that. But we need a centralized response using the Defense Production Act, using other levers the federal government has. And for some reason, and I, I just don't understand that isn't happening. It's just not happening. Okay, let me ask you one more data point here that possibly represents a small ray of hope, but I think maybe we don't know. Uh, I noticed that in the last uh, 24 hours, the death rate in Italy, which as everyone knows, has been hit so hard. In fact, at this point, in terms of numbers, harder than any place else. But the death rate has come down a little bit from 793 in the previous uh, 24 hours to 651. Is there any belief now that that means that Italy could have hit its peak, or is that just too optimistic and doesn't really meet rea with reality? I assume you want an honest response. We, <laughs> we want the truth. <laughs> you can handle the truth. I don't believe we've hit the peak in Italy, and really, I don't think any place. There were reports I saw of Singapore, and I, and I have not confirmed these, and I wasn't able to find the data that Singapore and Hong Kong have seen an uptick in infections, we know there's going to be a second wave. That is, I mean, I, I hear you saying that we have, you haven't confirmed that yet. I've seen reports about that too. That's an, potentially a very important and troubling point because those are two countries uh, that reacted with very you know, strong measures in terms of social distancing and in, in terms of virus mapping and other very, very strict measures. And it seemed to work. They seem to have been beating back the virus. If now we're seeing that those numbers are going back up again, what does that suggest to you? Is it, it is also possible, I've seen people speculate 
on this as well, that those countries have let their guard down. They thought that they had defeated the virus, but they have not. And that suggests to me that instead of, you know, in this country, lifting some of these tough measures that maybe the president is suggesting we might be able to do, we're going to have to be doing them for a lot longer than anyone ever anticipated. Right. If these reports about Singapore and Hong Kong are true, and it it appears that they are, but again, this is something we we need to confirm as journalists. It means this thing is resilient, which we know. This thing travels incredibly well, which we know. And that it waits for us to make mistakes, to let our guard down, which we also know. So frankly, I would be more surprised if it didn't stick around, if it didn't come back around, because that would be against the sort of the character of this disease. And yes, I think I think there's really, I think we have to be talking about really drastic measures for a very long time, potentially. Nobody wants to hear that. I, I don't want to say it. Look, just to put a coda on the numbers question we were talking about earlier, uh, I noticed the tweet from Tom Bossert this morning, Tom Bossert being President Trump's first Homeland Security uh, advisor and somebody who dealt with the pandemic issue when he had previously been in government during the Bush administration. And he wrote, sadly, the numbers now suggest the U.S. is poised to take the lead in coronavirus cases. It's reasonable to plan for the U.S. to top the list of countries with the most cases in approximately one week. This does not make social intervention futile it makes it imperative with an exclamation point. Just to pick up on your last point, Alex, you said that even more drastic measures may be needed. What are they? Well, we shouldn't scare people and we're just speculating. But for the United States, I think it could be internal travel restrictions. Um, Montreal is now fining people up to $1,000 for violating social distancing rules. I could see certain places taking measures like that. There was an article in the New York Times that said, if we could just keep people away from each other, sequestered in their houses for 14 days, this thing would end. So think about what would it take? What kind of measures could you see leading to that outcome, right? If I told you we could solve this in 14 days, wouldn't you say do whatever it takes short of, I don't know, doing something really wrong and egregious? So Do I think we'll see tanks on the street? No. Do I think we will see more drastic measures? Yes. Well, on that discouraging and pessimistic note, we uh, thank you for joining us once again, Alex. Um, Hang in there. Uh, Are you still going to the office, by the way? No, I'm because we got a dog. We're getting a dog tomorrow, so I'm working from home. Our offices are shut. Isakoff. No one's going to the offices. <laughs> Nobody. We've all been banned. Okay. We'll wait to see when that restriction gets lifted. But in any case, uh, Alex, thanks again for uh, joining us on Skullduggery. We now have with us Ben Smith, the New York Times new media columnist. Ben, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me on. 
So really fascinating column today on Fox News's coverage of the coronavirus, uh, how Fox got the virus so wrong. Start with its CEO. You are pointing the finger right there at the top at Lachlan Murdoch, the uh, CEO of Fox. Why are we starting with him? Well, you know, I, I basically I think we all saw Fox in the end of February and the beginning of March really kind of both echo President Trump's kind of soothing dismissiveness about the crisis and then really kind of go much further to say that the crisis, it's in the virus, or maybe if not the virus, the media coverage of the virus, that the most important things about them that were that they were an attack on President Trump. And they treated this like basically every other story. The Democrats and the media are going after Trump. We're going to defend him. And really lost focus totally on the biggest story of, you know, a long time, this giant global health crisis. And so I basically just started calling people there and saying, what the hell happened? Because at some point, both they, by March 11th, March 12th, around there, both Trump and Fox pivot really hard into both taking the virus seriously and saying that they've always taken it seriously. Almost overnight, I should say, you know, the moment Trump really pivoted, you saw that reflected almost immediately or immediately from Sean Hannity and Ingram and the rest of them. Yeah. And so I was sort of called up and said, you know, what happened and, and, and how did this work? And I guess what I found was that, well, actually, the CEO of Fox News, who's a, you know, somebody started as, as the boss's assistant 20 years ago and is a kind of longtime insider named Suzanne Scott. She had taken the virus really seriously. She was sanitizing the cafeterias and stuff like that early on. But that she turns out not to, even though she is nominally the CEO, to have really no control at all over the big talent. And that the person who did, Lachlan Murdoch, was just totally absent and really unclear if he would know how to be present if he was. And then his father was 89. Again, you know, maybe they wouldn't have, you know, may, I mean, I think they've been pretty devoted to President Trump anyway. But um, I do think that, you know, there was this sense that, like, of course, the buck stops nowhere. And I just wanted to kind of get into that. Like, how is that and how does that work? And who is technically in charge of this thing? Hey, Ben, uh, yeah, I want to get into some of the theories that you have and reporting, because that's one of the great things about this column is you actually did a lot of reporting, including, I think, talked to about 20 people inside the company. But before we get to that, you know, the, one of the things that really leapt out to me in the piece is the consequences of this coverage. You know, Fox News reaches huge numbers of people. And you spoke to a public health expert at uh, Harvard who said, actually, pretty clearly, unhesitatingly, it sounds like, that people died because of Fox's coverage. Tell us about that. Well, the, the people will die. I mean, I think, you know, that I, there's been this, I think, you know, sense among Democrats. And certainly, you know, another feature of this crisis has been that President Trump's critics, I think, are looking at sometimes looking at it primarily as an opportunity to dunk on him. And that, but so there's been this suggestion, you know, that, well, Trump's Fox is going to get people killed. Trump's going to get people killed. And I think I just wanted to make sure that wasn't just something people say on Twitter. So, yeah, I called up the guy who runs the Global Public Health Center at Harvard. And his point of view was, yeah, absolutely, that, that you know, media is a very important part of the whole public health infrastructure. And when the media communications go this haywire, people are going to expose themselves to the virus and get sick and die. And let's explore just for a second the theories behind why Fox has been in lockstep with the president and has covered it the way it did. Because, you know, sort of your first impulse, mine anyway, is 
this is rate, about ratings. This is Fox News in some ways playing to its base in the same way that this era of the Republican Party <laughs> plays to its base, you know, whether it serves them or not. But you actually think that's not the whole answer, that there are other reasons for its coverage. Talk about it a little bit. I mean, that is certainly a big part of the answer. I mean, Fox, they, they have good ratings. And I think in the, essentially the absence of any real leadership there, you have these hosts who are very close to the president, have incredible access to the president, are sort of streaming on, on and part of his movement and are getting great ratings. And they've destroyed the advertising business in the process because they've said such crazy stuff. But the subscription business is good. The ratings are good. And um, it's allowed the kind of management situation that, you know, it's very hard to imagine happening at almost any other company to go on. Although I think it's often true at companies where things are going well for reasons that don't have much to do with management. Management does a terrible job and gets away with it until there's a crisis. And I think that's really what happened here. Actually, you know, I, I love your point about how critics for years, or at least during the Trump years, have called Fox News state TV, and you suggest that's the wrong phraseology to use. State TV implies command and control. What Fox News is really more like is a family business where it's not entirely clear who is in charge. And that does get to the management of Fox News these days. It used to be you know, entirely command and control from Roger Ailes, it's very different now. Speak to that. Yeah, Fox, I mean, the Murdochs have always been kind of hands, I mean, Rupert likes to meddle in headlines and, and mix it up a lot, but also basically pretty hands-off media operators. And Roger Ailes was this notoriously turfy and powerful boss. And when he fell in this kind of nuclear sexual misconduct scandal, they just sort of didn't replace him. Like their attitude toward Fox had been, it's Roger's problem, Roger's taking care of it. And and, and Ailes had two things that the current leadership doesn't. He had um, maybe three. I and mean, first of all, he people inside feared him and respected him and he had control of the place. He also had, he had an instinct for where the lines were. For He would walk these lines and play games with them, but also had a, inst tried to protect Fox's, the, the sort of the news credibility that actually allowed Fox to be a powerful opinion network as well, and had a sense of what that balance was and had a kind of political feel for it. And third, he had a very strong instinct that he didn't want to be subservient to politicians, that, that ultimately the politicians worked for him and not vice versa, and had always resisted the sort of Republican Party takeover of the channel that Trump has executed. I mean, Ailes, and the thing that Ailes' sort of acolytes now say is that he would never have let Trump take over Fox like this. So the um, Lachlan Murdoch features prominently in your piece. And, you know, of course, whenever I see references to the Murdoch sons or family now, I just think of succession <laughs> and try to imagine one of those characters playing the role. Now, you know, from what I know, there's James Murdoch, who's the liberal, right? He's the guy who's like uh, um, married to the Australian broadcaster, was a um, contributed to the uh, Clinton Foundation, had ties to lots of liberal Democrats. Lachlan, not so much. That's why he's running Fox News. What is James running these days? What's his role? I think James is invest investing his copious amounts of money in <laughs> okay. properties, including Vice. Yeah. But how how much hands on is Lachlan from what you can tell? And does he push the network in particular directions or on particular stories? 
You know, it's been suggested that he's a conservative and that he he pushes it to the right and that he's comfortable with Trump. I think that's broadly true. It just doesn't seem like he knows how to push it. Like that was that was my impression from talking to lots and lots of people that he's really absent. The, the network that the, the company is run day to day by um, this guy named Viet Dinh, this very smart, you know, insidery Washington lawyer. Yeah, yeah, who both Kleiman and I know from his days at the Justice Department. So he's a sort of yeah, smart and powerful Washington insider who's not a media operator and hasn't worked in the media business before, but makes $24 million a year as the chief legal officer <laughs> at, uh, at Fox. So, you know, nice work if you can get it. And then relies a lot on Suzanne Scott, this very weak CEO of, uh, of Fox News who can't control, you know, the more important parts of the network, which, which operate as thieves. It sounds like after the the pivot and after Fox started getting a fair amount of criticism for its coverage, there was uh, recriminations uh, inside the network and a lot of finger pointing going on. What did you uh, learn about that? And what impact uh, do you think that is uh, is having? I mean, the hardest thing to report uh, about reporting on Fox is they all kind of lie to each other and about each <laughs> other. And so you can be talking to very good sources who've heard things from other good internal sources that turn out not to be true. But yeah, I think there's a wide, although not universal, recognition that this was a disaster. And somebody close to Rupert Murdoch says he called Hannity to get Hannity in line. And Hannity, on the record and quite convincingly, says that never happened. Tucker Carlson, who has taken it seriously all along and urged Trump to take it seriously and has been way ahead on this, is in some internal trouble because the network feels like he's sort of making himself look good at everybody else's expense, which I suppose is true. Not entirely to blame him for that. Carlson is in internal trouble over this? Yes. I mean, what I reported was that their comms chief, Arena Briganti, who's been there forever and who's, I think, the one internal executive who the talent takes seriously and fears, had been telling others that she's upset that Tucker is spinning, in her view, himself as the hero at the expense of other hosts, which I think reflects the sentiment internally. All right. Well, here's my here's my question, sort of bottom line, Ben. I mean, you know, you say that people, a lot of people inside the network have come to realize that this is a bit of a disaster for them. But there have been a lot of disasters at Fox News over uh, the recent recent years. And I guess the question is, what are the consequences going to be? Is is this, I mean, they're still minting money. Their ratings are still through the roof, aren't they? I mean, are there consequences for getting a story that's as important as this one is, getting it wrong? And I'm not saying that there won't be. I'm just curious what you think about that. I mean, it seems like the consequences are likely to be that some of their viewers will die. And they've got a lot of viewers. <laughs> And I'm not sure that's a business consequence. I agree. I don't think there's necessarily like corporate earnings statements always bring justice. Yeah. I got to say, this this is a case where the power of Fox News and its reach really comes through because, you know, you look at the polls, you look at uh, the way Republican voters have been, when they're polled, the numbers who take this seriously are a lot lower than independents and Democrats. And I think that's, you know, a direct reflection of the fact that they're watching Fox News at night, particularly at night. And that's where, you know, it's the nighttime anchors, Ingram and Hannity, who have been 
the most aggressive and the most wrong. But let's take a step back. You're the media columnist for The Times now. Uh, you're watching the media's coverage writ large of this. How do you assess how the media has done more broadly? And are there standouts for you in positive or negative for other players beyond those in Fox News? Huh. God, I'm not used to being this kind of media ref, and I'm not sure I like it. <laughs> it's your job, Ben. <laughs> Somebody tweeted in February that everything that any official does before the crisis is going to be seen as overkill, and anything after will be seen as inevitable, and that same act afterward will be seen as inadequate. I think that's like obviously true. I mean, I think to me the most actually positive media story has been the voices of both kind of epidemiologists and frontline doctors and nurses on social media, which I think cut through in a way that the mainstream media couldn't in January and February and, and really alarmed people, including journalists, sort of fed back into the best of the news coverage. But, you know, for instance, that great New York Times story on um, the researchers in Seattle who basically ignored the CDC and discovered okay. coronavirus, you know, that story broke with one of the researchers tweeting their results. And the thing that I like you know, freaked out and texted to the mayor of New York was this um, translation on Reddit of an Italian doctor's Facebook post about um, what it was like inside those wards. And I, I think the social media companies have, like, acted pretty responsibly for a change and really, like, and I think really amplified these very like, powerful kind of firsthand accounts that even people who are skeptical of, of the media can believe. And meanwhile, I think the thing with cable news right now is that even if you have an anchor who, you know, on there saying it's an emergency, it's a crisis, act now. I mean, it's the same thing they've been saying for the last three years every day. And it gets a little hard. Like, you know, it's, remember when the Bush administration had those terrorism alerts and they were always on orange? It's just like cable news is always on orange. And so it can be a little hard to tell, is this really orange or is this just like the same kind of dose of adrenaline tonight? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that to some degree, you know, Fox News is just playing off its media adversaries uh, at MSNBC or CNN, and they hear the MSNBC folks blaming Trump right from the get-go. In, in this case, I think most people would think deservedly, but you know, leave that aside, they're reacting to that. It's the political back and forth. I think that's really true. And I think a lot of Republican politics and of Trump's politics are about grievances at the media, like more than more than they often are about, you know, taxes and spending and government and war and peace. They're about the media. And Fox is a lot about the media. And so if you're if the media is primary and whatever the underlying facts are secondary, this is the kind of coverage you get. I think that we're treating it totally as in the normal stream of these guys are attacking Trump. We're going to defend him. Didn't realize this was a totally different kind of story. Yeah, I think your your uh, kind of larger point about you know the way people consume cable news. I think there is a kind of you know kind of dialing everything back a, a notch or two because they've already factored in how much things get hyped. Uh, and it, for me, the moment when I realized, oh boy, this may really be serious, was listening actually to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, and hearing uh, one of your science reporters, Don McNeil, talking about coronavirus in sort of the same context as the 1918 Spanish uh, flu. And I remember him saying, well, this isn't going to be the Black Death, but... 
Uh, and, <laughs> and my first reaction was, and, and, it's quite a butt. And, and, and he was talking about, you know, he was talking about half the country getting this flu. And he was talking about, well, you may not die, but you're going to know someone who dies, maybe one in 300 people. And, you know, I went back to the office. A lot of people heard that and thought, well, you know, they're fear mongering. I mean, that, that was irresponsible. And I thought, you know, this is the sober New York Times, you know, science reporter. They tend to be pretty careful about these things. But I, I do think that, that people reacted in that way because they're so accustomed to the, you know, let's not, it's not, it's not 10, we, we're putting the dial to 11. <laughs> that is so much part of our media culture right now. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, this isn't fundamentally a story about Donald Trump. And I think everything, you know, he's the sun in the sky and everything gets sort of taken through the lens of him. And, and obviously his mismanagement of it is a huge, huge story. But it's not as big a story as the virus itself. And I think that's a hard thing for people to get their heads around. Ben, speaking of uh, Donald Trump, let me ask you about another question that's kind of popped up in terms of our media coverage. These are the daily coronavirus task force briefings that Trump is holding. They were in the morning. They've now moved to 5.30. And you've heard people speculate. I don't think there's any hard reporting behind this, that they've moved it to 5.30 because they want to be closer to uh, the news, maybe drown out the evening news. I'm not sure how many people actually get their, their news that way. But. Or because you don't want to see the markets. Or, uh, right, right, exactly. I've heard some people in our profession even raise the question of whether we ought to be covering that briefing on a daily basis because it is now dominated by Trump. Trump peddles, you know, misinformation, gets his facts wrong. You know, we've talked about among ourselves, I think we think it's still important to cover that briefing because there are public health officials. But, you know, it does bring to mind, you know, the sort of five five o'clock follies of the Vietnam era, which, Ben, you and I don't remember, but Isikoff does. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> because I remember what I read in the history books. But go ahead. <laughs> no, but, but, but seriously, I, I guess, uh, I, how do you think about the challenge of covering a briefing like that when you know uh, that the president is going to be engaging in the kind of um, misinformation that he has been on a, on a daily basis. I mean, I think this is really primarily a question for the cable channels, right? And obviously Fox will take it because they love him. And right. are there MSNBC viewers who we think or CNN viewers at this point who are going to be persuaded by him? I guess I'm not, I think this is, sometimes the media takes its own actions, like thinks that it controls things more than it does. Like I think maybe it would be a good idea to put it on tape delay and fact check it. But I think that the outlets that would be doing that are probably not primarily speaking to people. Who, are, who believe his word is gospel. Right. Um, in general, I think, I think the trick with covering him to the degree there is one is the kind of proportionality. You know, he's the president of the United States. You should cover, you know, you should keep an eye on what he says. And when he's spreading, you know, racist vitriol, you should find a way to write about that that's reasonable. But if you have 100 reporters, maybe have one of them doing that, you know, and have the other 99 doing more useful things. I, I guess because there's not, because often he'll just, I mean, he just says stuff that has no meaning or consequence. And so it's not often not that important. Hey, Ben, how do you like the new gig? It's a pretty weird time to start a new job. I don't know. I mean, I love reporting <laughs> and I like, you know, scoops. So um, that part of it I really like. If you have any, if, if you or your listeners have any scoops for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, just to be clear, this is the old David Carr slot, right, of media columnist. But you're not the ombudsman. You know, it's funny. I'm definitely not the ombudsman, and I'm not really. I don't really see myself as a media critic or kind of scold. Like I don't, 
I don't know. I think it's a weird, complicated business and people can do it differently. And that the best journalists are often the ones who are worst at following the rules and vice versa. So, um, but that said, because when David had this column, and I think for a time when Jim Rutenberg had this column, there was a public editor. And so there's definitely a lot of people who think I'm supposed to do the ombudsman. I'm getting a lot of emails about things the New York Times does wrong. I think I should probably cover them once in a while just to kind of keep myself honest. Well, uh, we will be reading you here at Skullduggery and um, hope to have you back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Good talking to you. Thanks, Anytime. Ben. Take care. Thanks to Yahoo News' own Alex Nazarian and New York Times media columnist Ben Smith for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.